Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? It was only five years ago that Indian novelist Amitabh Ghosh questioned why writers, himself included, weren't tackling climate change in their work. Now, as glaciers melt, forests burn, and floods destroy lives and livelihoods, the climate emergency has brought what used to be the unimaginable into the lives and literature of people around the world. It's not all doom and gloom, though. At its best, fiction inspires, makes us think, and sometimes it even spurs us to act. Not to mention, sometimes it makes us laugh. This week, we speak with three Canadian writers who wrestle with the climate crisis, hold up a mirror to the damage that's been done, and envision a path through the dilemmas yet to come. We begin with a scene that's becoming more familiar. A vicious storm brings a tempest of trouble to an idyllic island off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. And climate change is clearly a player in the drama found in the novel Blaze Island. Catherine Bush is the author of that book. Hello. Hi, Laura. It's great to be with you today. I I used the word tempest in the introduction just now because, in fact, you use Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, as an inspiration for the book. Why? Well, I was interested in thinking of Prospero and the Magician as a contemporary climate scientist who... Um, wants to control the weather for the best of reasons because he's desperate to protect his daughter from all the the troubles that our climate disruptions might bring. And Prospero in the play creates storms and does control the weather and the world around him. In fact, he's quite a controlling character. And I was interested in the complexities of that desire to protect that leads you know a contemporary man to think of technology as a possible savior. And and we are talking about this being cast in probably the near future. So, well, it's actually I would say an alternate present because the technologies that the novel grapples with, solar radiation management as a form of climate engineering, is is actually contemporary. I mean, there's research being done by Canadian David Keith at, at Harvard. Um, but I'm interested in it as a form of magical thinking, too, because it's still kind of speculative science, and and yet there's a desire to believe in it. And, it, and it's that desire to believe in speculative science that's very interesting to me as a novelist. Right, because Miranda's father is, in this case, the climate scientist who, who brought the both of them to live on the remote island after her mother, who is his wife, dies. And you, as you say, you have him developing this technological fix to help cool the planet. And I just want to ask you about that, because not everyone believes technology can or will fix everything. Why was it so important for you to explore it? I was interested in it as a moral dilemma. I was interested in the lure it presents both for a scientist whose desire to explore it is rooted in grief and fear and and ultimately climate terror. And I've certainly met people like that. Um, I mean, it's also a, a lure for 
business and, and governments these days, whether it's solar radiation management and the desire to send particulate matter into the atmosphere and create a haze and moderate temperature, or even, um, you know, carbon capture and removal, which exists, but not on the level that we need it and is still a kind of speculative or conceptual science. And, and so that desire um, to believe in a te that technology will save you is or save us is really interesting to me as an emotional, psychological state and, and potentially a contradiction. The novel is a novel. It's not advocating anything. It's exploring the, the complexities of these emotional and psychological desires. All right. The two protagonists in this exploration are Miranda, the scientist's daughter, and Caleb. They're both young. They're both making their way in a world where the impact of climate change is is really having an effect and bearing down on them and their future. Why did you want to tell the story through the eyes of, of young people? Well, I, I think that, you know, climate disruptions are going to affect um, younger generations even, you know, ever more. But I was also interested, though this is a story with a scientist, a climate scientist um, at, this, at the center of making the protagonists, not the scientists, but the ones who are trying to understand science. And, and also Miranda, she lives on this remote, beautiful island that her father won't allow her to leave. And she's deeply engaged, as is Caleb with the natural, natural world. But she also doesn't want to know what her father is up to. She doesn't want to think about his depths of fear and grief. And I think we're all engaged in those everyday habits of denial. And so I was interested in, in that as a state of mind to, to write from, even as she's forced as the novel continues to grapple with change and a future that's not going to look anything like her past. And Caleb, what, 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 how is he making his way in this world? Um, Caleb's a, a young man from the island who, whose mother has lived there, or her, her family has lived there from generations, though his father is an outsider, and he's cast as an outsider to a mixed race outsider. But he longs to create a home on the island, and his idea of the future is very much shaped by, by the past. And, you know, he too is forced to realize that he can't use the past as a model for what's to come. Now, I want to ask you, you have also have an Inuk scientist in the book, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what about her and what she represents. Yes. Um, I'm the, the climate scientist, Millen Wells, in the novel is an, an, an Arctic specialist um, who spent his career up on the Arctic ice. But I really didn't feel I could write about ice without... Um, bringing in, you know, an, an Inuk character, um, Agnes Watson, who is a scientist who studies particulate matter, dark matter in snow and ice. So she's a scientist who lives in Ottawa, but she's from Nain in Nunatsiavut. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I based her on, on, on characters and, and spoke and had Renelta Arluk, the theater, the Inuk theater director, read the novel. Um, and she was a wonderful resource, but it felt important to me to to bring that voice respectfully in into the novel, um, rather than you know having a world of ice that that didn't have any in indigenous characters in it. And the island itself is also a character, and it's based on a real island, Fogo Island. You've spent a good amount of time there. How have you seen climate change affect the island? Yes, um, Blaze Island in the novel. There is an actual island named Blaze Island in the Arctic, but 
but my um, Blaze Island is is very much a reimagining of Fogo Island, which of course means fire. I um, mean, I went there over a course of eight years um, throughout the seasons, and you know, was lucky enough to have a series of artist residencies in the village of Tilting on the on the far Atlantic side of the island, which became Pummely in the novel, and felt very welcomed by the community. And I asked people about their experiences of weather changes and climate changes, and and certainly there's much greater unpredictability of the weather and sea ice loss is also a big thing. I mean, in, in earlier times, sea ice, multi-year sea ice would come down from the Arctic every, every spring. Now it doesn't always come. Now it's not multi-year ice. It's just, you know, thin single year ice. And that's a dramatic and, and very troubling development. I'm wondering why it's important for you to write about climate change as a novelist. I'm wondering what what do you think you can bring to the subject that others involved in fighting climate change can't? I believe that you know storytelling is is actually key to our survival as as a species, and so we need new stories. And when I think of climate fiction, I don't think of it as a genre, but a desire to respond somehow to our existential condition, to acknowledge it, um, and I think you know all fiction at its root wants to seduce through story, but also transform through story. You know, if someone were to walk out into the street again, wherever they are afterwards, and feel the wind newly, or imagine ice like actually swallowing iceberg ice with ten thousand year old air, air bubbles in it, and be you know transformed by imagining that experience, then that would be wonderful. I think we need more wonder and awe, not just you know despair and fear. Wonder and awe and care are what are going to transform us. And maybe hope too, because without spoiling things, you do end the novel on a hopeful note. Why was it important for you to finish the story that way? I think hope is important, but actually there's this wonderful writer named Sarah Jaquette Ray who wrote a book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety. And she talks about replacing the idea of hope with desire, that hope is a more passive state, whereas desire leads to purpose and action. And I hope the end of the novel sends readers out into the, into the world with a desire to see more, pay more attention to the natural world, imagine how we need to transform ourselves in stories. Okay, we're going to leave that dangling out there to tempt all those those readers to come get your book. So, but this is our books episode, so I'm wondering just finally, can you share any recommendations for, for other pieces of climate fiction that, that you've read recently that you would recommend? Okay. Well, I know that you have David Hubert on the, on the show, and I just want to do a shout out for his extraordinary um, hallucinatory title story, Chemical Valley. And also mention Daryl Wetter's novel, Our Sands, which is the only Canadian novel I can think of that addresses the Alberta oil sands. Um, Lydia Millet's The Children's Bible, which brings dark comedy to climate fiction. And I feel that that tone of dark comedy is so, or comedy of any sort is, is so essential um, to figure out how we, how we move ahead. Um, and also a shout out to Wab Gishig Rice's amazing Moon of the Crusted Snow. Um, Wab and I just did an event together in Germany and, and his story of indigenous survival in the aftermath of a, of a blackout, a story of community resilience, I think is, is one that we all need to hear. All right. That's a great list. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Catherine Bush is the author of Blaze Island. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? 
I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. From Fogo Island to the University of Alberta in Edmonton. That's where Premi Muhammad's vision of the future plays out. Her latest novella, The Annual Migration of Clouds, takes place long after climate disasters have wreaked havoc around the globe. A community of survivors cobbles together an existence living on the abandoned campus as they cope with the reality of an incurable disease. Premi Muhammad, hello. Hi, thanks for inviting me onto the show. Thanks for being with us. Your, your protagonist, Reed, she has to choose between staying with her community and leaving to go study at an actual university, which is a dome sanctuary built by wealthy people who formed enclaves to survive climate disaster. I'm wondering what you see at the heart of the choice she has to make. It's the choice that she didn't expect to be presented with, I think, that I, that I wanted to make an interesting choice in the book. She's not a very individualistic person and the choices that she's had to make in her life generally have been, are you doing something for the good of the community or are you not doing something for the good of the community? I wrote a future with this group of people who are much more collectively minded, almost to their detriment, so that when Reed is presented with the choice to go do something for herself, um, she has a really hard time with it. and. I guess I'm curious as to how readers are perceiving that now because we're very individualistic. And the only way Reed is able to think about this is, well, if I go, maybe I can better my community. It's a very strange choice for her because she's not used to thinking that way. It's a real dilemma. And the other thing that I think it's important to, to point out to listeners here is that is that the community that she lives in lives on the campus of the University of Alberta um, and it's, it's been taken over, in effect, as, as a place where people can try to survive, but because um, they are not privileged or wealthy, they are not living in these protective domes. So the, this idea of community, what do you think it offers to people as they face the impacts of the climate crisis in the coming years? I hope what it offers is, is actually hope. Um, I was thinking of this the other day with those disasters in BC on the coast, because I think I saw some government advice saying something like, everybody evacuate if you can. And I thought, well, if I had been in that situation, I actually wouldn't have been able to evacuate. I don't have a vehicle. And for medical reasons, I'm not supposed to drive. So in that case, I would have had to rely on my community to hopefully look after me and get me out of there. And I think that's becoming more and more evident as these disasters become more common, even as the pandemic goes on. It's the Larger superstructures around us, um, corporations, government, can't necessarily protect us and keep us safe and give us resources to live the way that a smaller, more flexible community on the ground can. And not just safety in numbers, but also the attitude of our job as a community 
is to keep everybody safe and warm and and fed, that kind of thing. Your your book has been described by others as, uh, I've never heard of this before, hope, <laughs> hope punk. I understand that you had to look that up. Um, so, I did. <laughs> yeah, so, so share with us, what, what does it mean exactly? Yeah, uh, marketing put that on there. I had no <laughs> idea what it meant. And I was like, oh, it's another punk, like cyberpunk or steampunk. And I actually, I don't have a 100% good idea what those mean either. <laughs> um, yeah, hope punk is not about unbearable naivety or optimism that ignores the facts of the world. The punk part of it is the fighting back against that, I think, and kind of saying, well, we we as characters, we as people recognize that there are very, very major problems, that our lives may be in danger, that our loved ones are in danger, our humanity itself may be in danger. But the way we are going to respond to that is not with cruelty and violence and ambition and greed. And if we see those tendencies starting to arise within ourselves, our goal is to fight back against them and to make sure that the people around us are safe from them and that we have their support while we're fighting. It's a term that I don't know that I'm going to become comfortable using, but if it's a genre of literature, I would like to see more of it. I would like to see more characters and more books acknowledging that these terrible problems and the villains and the antagonists and the systemic issues can be solved together in ways that don't devolve into a bloodbath. How has the book been received so far? Oh, um, I don't read my reviews because everyone told me not to read my reviews. <laughs> but I am hearing uh, from trusted third parties that people are enjoying it, which I think is good, and uh, zeroing in on the idea that it is a climate fiction book that may fit into a larger body of climate fiction, i.e. not a book in which humanity actually solves the problem, but in which we take the hit and roll. And I think that the themes of individualism and collectivism and the ideas of sort of transactionality and what we owe each other out of love or or duty are really resonating with people. And I'm also getting a lot of uh, local friends pinging me to be like, oh, I recognize so many things in this. So that's really nice. Well, well, this is our books episode. So aside from us presenting your book to our listeners, can you recommend any other pieces of fiction with climate change themes that you've read lately? Uh, yeah, I really liked Gun Island by Amitav Ghosh, because to me, it didn't strike me immediately as being a climate change book. Um, but it actually is. It's about the knock-on effects of climate change. It's about climate change affecting the Sundarbans, so the swamps where these people live, and basically forcing them out because they can no longer live there. And then instead of seeming like a climate change book, it seems like a book about um, migrants, about these refugees, and about a society that's asking itself, well, what are we supposed to do with these people? We don't want them here. How will they make a living? They're a burden. Why couldn't they have stayed where they were? And to me, that's the kind of climate literature that I hope we're going to start seeing. So not so much the disasters themselves, but the effects caused by climate change that don't seem immediately evident. 
Rimi Mohammed, thank you for your thoughts and your time, and most of all, for your book, The Annual Migration of Clouds. Thank you for inviting me. Finally, to Sarnia, Ontario, and a region nicknamed Chemical Valley for its petrochemical plants and refineries. David Hubert's short stories explore environmental dread and creeping climate chaos, but also the power of love and community in a damaged world. Chemical Valley is the name of the collection, and David Hubert joins me now. Hello. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. What drew you to set the first half of this collection of stories in Chemical Valley? Well, I was living nearby in London, Ontario, where I was doing my PhD, and um, I'd met some friends from Sardinia, so I went down to visit. It was a beautiful summer day, and the Blue Lake was winding through the city, and it's in many ways this gorgeous, beautiful city until you get down to the area they call Chemical Valley, where there's just a massive amount of petrochemical industry right in the middle of the city. There's giant, massive stacks. There's sort of barbed wire fences and do not enter signs. And there's flares going off in the middle of the day. And all of this seemed to me to be a profound parable for the way all of us live in proximity to toxicity and the way that oil sort of circulates through our society, uh, always in an unseen way as a sort of subliminal presence or like, you know, what I've come to think of as a sort of shadow side of our contemporary civilization. Yes, it seeped into your artistic consciousness. (laughs) The the characters in the stories, they live and work in the region. Oil is a way of life for them, but they're they're also seeing the impacts of climate change in their community. Why was it important for you to tell stories about people who make a living in the petrochemical industry? Yeah, that was really, really important to me, and it was definitely partly because I could see the risks inherent in trying uh, trying to judge oil. Obviously, in the contemporary political situation, there is, uh, you know, a necessity to uh, move beyond fossil fuel industry. And in that way, the fossil fuel industry uh, presents as a sort of boogeyman of climate discourse. But I also wanted to think in more complicated ways about the ways that all of our lives are entangled in oil and so sort of varying degrees of complicity. And then I also wanted to just recognize that this is livelihood for many people. Um, this is the only thing many people know. For many people in this community, you know, oil is both sustaining them and damaging them. And that sort of seemed to me a complex situation worthy of art. So I just wanted to sort of get beyond uh, the question of good guys and bad guys and get into, you know, get my hands dirty, as it were, with the messiness that is oil and that is petroculture and the different ways many of us live at that, and certainly trying not to demonize sort of oil workers and their families. And their families. Some of the characters in your stories are teenagers. The girls in, in the story called entitled Swamp Things attend climate protests where they, I love this quote, post board selfies of ourselves with air filtration masks on, stacks jabbing up through the background, and, and the stacks you, you speak of there are the smokestacks. What was it like for you to put yourself in the shoes of teenage girls for, for those stories? Yeah, it was fascinating and and difficult and tricky and everyone listening probably experienced being a teenager is not an easy thing, right? (laughs) Just being a teenager. And then so adding this sort of profound existential dread that all of us are are dealing with today uh, into that mix seemed to me 
both terrifying, paralyzing, and exciting for narrative possibility. And it was just something I wanted to explore and and to empathize with. And I'm also, you know, uh, like many people, inspired by youth. We've had quite a few on on the program, and they are indeed <laughs> inspiring. Um, mm. the, in in that story, as well as other stories, the characters they come through in different stories. They're connected to each other. And that says something, I think, about interconnectedness. What kind of solution do you think that offers when it comes to the climate crisis? Yes. Well, acknowledging community and trying to form new forms of communities, trying to think through this problem together, trying to think through it in interconnected ways, but also trying to acknowledge that for all of us, climate crisis is sort of a discrete emotional journey. I think all of that's really important. So going through these feelings together and sort of seeking for political solutions together, I think is really important. It also seems to offer you an opportunity to to have a little bit of humor (laughs) in the darkness in the stories. Um, And I'm wondering how you reconcile those two things. Yes. Well, humor is absolutely crucial to me. I mean, I think humor is uh, a way that we process many, many things. It just offers me a different mode of expression and it tries to break up the tries to break up the dread and the anxiety and these sort of it's a it can be also a way of processing and a way of turning these feelings on their heads and examining them and it's certainly one of the ways that we um that we can be together as people that we can connect as people is is through humor when we laugh right when we laugh that cuts through a lot of a lot of disconnections if you can make a person laugh um perhaps that can be the first and strongest social connection that you can form with with them so yeah i mean i do think we need you know um nicole seymour who's a writer i really admire wrote a book called bad environmentalism mm-hmm. and in that book she sort of took issue with the whole doom and gloom discourse that usually permeates uh, climate discourse and sort of pointed out that maybe we need to think through some more avenues or, or sort of mine for some more avenues for how to approach this problem and this dilemma, which defines us in so many ways. And humor was certainly humor and absurdity were one of the things that Nicole Seymour was going for there. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's room for more levity in climate change discourse. And I would love to see and I hope to try to create new and different forms of, of sort of lightening the load, as I, it were. I imagine, I imagine it's actually a bit of a relief for you as a writer as well. Mm-hmm. You're doing that for yourself as much as anything else. And yeah, empathy is, is foremost for me. So I'm, I'm really trying to feel through, feel through these, these problems and questions. This is our books episode. So I'm wondering if you have any other climate-themed fiction that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah. For me, many classic works of literature have also always been environmental. For me, storytelling has always been environmental. So when I look at the classics, I always read them through an environmental lens as well. But in terms of more recent books, there's actually a nonfiction book called Visit Sunny Chernobyl and Other Adventures in the World's Most Polluted Places by Andrew Blackwell. And that's a book that I'm a huge fan of and that I go back to many times. It's a book of what he calls pollution tourism. And um, that was very inspirational for me. He goes and looks at Chernobyl and sort of looks at the exclusion zone and looks at the wildlife flourishing in the exclusion zone. And he just looks at environmental catastrophe and degradation in an unusual, in a comic, in a refreshing, uh, and in an honest way as well, in a, in a way that I think is, is politically real. So, so that was a big one for me. And then 
I'm also really inspired by Underland by Robert McFarlane, um, recently by Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. So those are a few that I would All name. right. Well, there you go, listeners. A big list, but, but put uh, David Hubert's book, Chemical Valley, at the top of it. It's a great collection of stories. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much, Laura. It's really lovely to be here. That's it for us this week. Thanks to the team, associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders, producer Molly Siegel, engineer Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Happy holidays, and I'll talk to you in the new year. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.